The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week for episode 41, a very special guest who's been described as a wine rock star. Nothing to do with his singing voice, as far as I'm aware, but he is responsible for one of the biggest names in the wine world, the Grange. It is, of course, Peter Gago, the chief winemaker at Penfolds. He joins me from Melbourne to talk about his own philosophy, how Penfolds is conquering the world, the incredible story of how the Grange started its life in secret, how the fruit for that wine is selected. It's quite a process, I can tell you. And he even let slip his favourite back vintage. So stay tuned for that later on. Plus, of course, your recommendations for medal winning wines from the IWSC. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Peter Gago has been described as a wine rock star, such is the profile that comes with being custodian of one of the world's most famous cuvées, the Grange, itself hailing from one of the world's most successful and innovative global brands, Penfolds. This year, 2022, Gago is marking 20 years in the role as chief winemaker, a job that extends well beyond the borders of Australia, as Penfolds also boasts a branded champagne and a collection of wines from California. Back home, the jewel in the crown, the Grange, which began its life as the secret creation of Max Schubert, uh, more on that in a moment, and Stablemate 707 have recently been joined by two new wines, 802A and 802B, uh, launched to acclaim a few months ago and described as super blends, and earlier last year, uh, two cross-country blends as well, Quantum and 149, that mix Australian and Californian fruit. All of this in the year that the daddy of them all, the Grange, turned 70. It was uh, a busy year. 2021 no doubt 2022 will be too and I'm delighted to say uh, busy though he is Peter Gago has uh, found the time to join us on the drinking hour from Melbourne Peter welcome hello David great to be talking to you well it's great to be talking to you too so far away and yet uh, so clear Peter uh, before we talk about your creations a little bit about you and I have to start here because I am a Geordie uh, I was uh, born in North Shields. I don't sound like one, but I am one. You don't sound like one either. So I was very surprised to find out that you are also a Geordie. Absolutely. And I uh, spent my first five years not in North Shields, but in South Shields, you know, around Whitley Bay and Jarrow. Tynesiders, call us what you will. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a long time ago for me. It is a long time ago. We moved to Australia back in 1963. I won't do the arithmetic. Wow. Okay. Well, that is uh, something that, uh, yeah, genuinely, until I was doing my homework, I had no idea because you don't sound like one. But then, as I said, <laughs> neither do I. I sound sort of all posh and southern now these days. But oh. uh, you're, um, you're, I'd assumed as well, before I did my research, uh, that you kind of, uh, you know, wanted to make wine from an early age and, and went straight into a, some kind of uh, enological education process of some kind. You know, you perhaps uh, did a bit of uh, time in a winery when you were 16 or whatever. And uh, no, um, you went from education into education. You were 
a science teacher, right? Absolutely, yeah. Science, mathematics, um, loved it. Didn't leave because of disenchantment. Um, I, I guess I did exit because of another opportunity. You know, uh, teaching, I still think I do it. The, the skills, the communication, all of that sort of thing, organisational and otherwise. Uh, I'm so glad I did do it. But yeah, the whole winemaking thing was more of an immersion than an epiphany. We, we refer to it as the grip of the grape. The more you get into it, literally, the more you get into it. <laughs> That's what happened. It snuck on, up on me. You know, a, a hobby became a collection. The collection became a passion, a session, and that gradated thereafter to uh, a career. Yeah, decades and decades later, I often sort of scratch my head and wonder how it happened. So how old were you then when you first made a wine? Well, I did dabble in my early teaching days. We used to go across to Coonawarra, living in Melbourne at the time, quite the drive. And I actually had some friends who had their own little small aeroplanes and things. Nothing flash, not jets, but little Cessnas and things. And it was an annual um, pilgrimage, an annual adventure. And bit by bit, you know, I then did a little small course in what was referred to as basic scientific winemaking. And my wife went back to university and completed you know some further tertiary studies and then having finished that she said well now it's your turn and I, it sort of surprised me a little bit because I'd never had intended to go and do it yet another degree and uh, I don't think she was counting on uh, me moving to uh, us moving into another state to study at Roseworthy which is the oldest agricultural college in Australia and, and nowadays part of the University of Adelaide. She didn't mind me studying for another degree, but I don't think she she counted on us moving, <laughs> selling up and moving uh, quite a considerable distance. But no regrets, uh, only ever look forward thereafter. But uh, yeah, they were interesting days. And how did you get into Penfolds? Because it was already, by the time you started, an absolutely enormous and hugely successful kind of power brand, wasn't it? Well, look, it was and always sort of has been. You know, Penfolds has a little bit of a uh, traditional sort of perceptual shadow sometimes over it, but it's always been, right from the mid-1800s, quite innovative. You know, the first to do this, the first to do that, the first to send wine to China, not in the 2000s, but in the, you know, the early 1900s. Um it always was a little bit out there, but not generally acknowledged as such. And in fact, when I left Roseworthy and I had to do well at the course because I went in as an adult sort of age, mature age student. So I was lucky enough, I came top of the course and had a, a choice of a few jobs. And some of my friends were saying, well, why, why, why are you going to Penfolds? You know, because oftentimes the imagery was one of big is bad. And um, I really knew what I was getting into, wanted to go there, you know, applied formally for a job and um, fortunately got it and have never, never had two days being the same, the best of vineyards, the best of equipment, the best of fruit selection and, of course, 177 years behind us. So, uh, yeah, it was quite odd at the time. Um, I was very lucky getting in there and um, still lucky to be employed there after almost a third of a century. And I think you made sparkling wines at the sort of start of your winemaking career, didn't you? Indeed, yeah, yeah. And it, it sort of that came about 
I guess I did, rather than a, a final year project in the degree, the last two years I spent in the second last year making the sparkling wines than the final year analysing them. And I always thought, you know, that's my future in terms of winemaking, sparkling winemaking, or perhaps even one day dabbling in champagne, dare I say. And we might refer to that a little bit later in the interview because we are now physically making the real thing, champagne. But back in those days, yeah, spent my first probably just about four, four and a bit years at Penfolds, uh, applied for a sparkling winemaker role, was successful, and worked with the great Ed Carr, who does so well nowadays in Australia and sells lots of his wines uh, across the United Kingdom as well. And had four great years before moving into the red wine department. And uh, I should also mention uh, the companion of the Order of Australia while we talk about you, because you were afforded this honour, which is uh, hugely uh, prestigious, coveted, rare, in the Queen's Birthday Honours four years ago. And I I think one of your illustrious predecessors had a similar honour, although it may have had a different title uh, from what I can gather. But uh, just tell me about how you felt uh, on on hearing the news that you'd been uh, awarded that. Well, look, I, I it, going back right to the start of our chat, you know, how does someone from you know the northeast of England <laughs> end up getting an AC in Australia, and you know, someone in the wine industry? It, it is the highest honour in Australia. Um, there's an AC, an AO, an AM, and an OAM, all you know, wonderful honours, but. It was the first time anyone in the Australian wine industry had been awarded an AC. So, yeah, I was just bowled over, humbled by it. Um, off, I joked, it's something I'm not going to give back, but I sort of thought, oh, how did that happen? But, you know, I think uh, a lot of my time over the last few decades has been spent offshore flying the Australian wine flag into new markets, older markets and such like. And, um, yeah, it was a great honour and, as I say, very humbled by it and also hugely surprised, but I'm not giving it back. <laughs> no, no, nor should you. But, I, I mean, it's, you stepped into these uh, giant shoes. Uh, you were only, uh, and still are, the only, only the fourth person, I think, to be the chief winemaker of, of, of Penfolds. And uh, the first person to do that job was Max Schubert, uh, the name may be familiar to uh, wine lovers because you have some uh, some wines named in his honour. Tell us a little bit about him and his legacy. Yes, well, a huge legacy, you know, and I'm fortunate to work even currently with people who worked and knew Max. I, I knew Max, but not that well. Uh, when I started in the late 80s, he was well and truly retired, you know, Uh, The second chief winemaker of Penfolds, um, Don Ditter, even he retired back in 1986 when John Duval took over. But Max's work and that of his companion, Dr Ray Beckwith, the legendary wine chemist of of Penfolds, really did pave uh, incredulous new territories in that for Penfolds in the way of winemaking. You know, Dr. Ray Beckwith, the companion, you know, who's the first person in the world to use a Cambridge pH meter uh, in an analytical sense, you know, and for malolactic fermentations, paper chromatography. They were doing things inside Penfolds in the secret squirrel days when you didn't tell anyone about anything about what you were doing internally in any wine company anywhere. They were they were doing things that hadn't yet been trialled in Italy or France, Spain, Germany or anywhere 
and they they were happening at McGill Estate in just outside of Adelaide in South Australia. So there's a wonderful tradition of this sort of work, and Max was quite pivotal in the modern era of Penfolds. You know, our bin wines, bin 389, only last year celebrated 60 years. Max created that style. You know, he allowed a contemporary of his, John Daverin, to continue the production and resurrected the Sononry style a style that commenced back in 1889 and we still make it today. You know, it's a contender alongside Grange for people's favourite Penfold Red. Obviously, the first, you know, 707 in the early 60s, he created a whole set of very, at the time, uh, modern styles, a lot of which are still made in this day and age. And as you earlier mentioned, you know, 70 years even of Grange, who, who would have thought? And it was news to me, actually, that the Grange, I mean, everyone knows that wine. Anyone who's into wine knows about that wine. Uh, it's a legendary wine. Um, but it began its life as Max Schubert's secret project. Uh, it's incredible, really. Just tell us a bit more about that. Well, very much so. He, in those days, of course, Penfolds was family-owned, and Max had a study trip into Europe. In fact, it was to Jerez in Spain because we made a lot of fortifines back in the days. And not port, just port-style wines, but sherry-style wines as well. So he went to Jerez and on the way back uh, went through Bordeaux and came back to, to Adelaide and thought, well, less of this maturation and old, large food or big old vats, we'll use small new oak and we'll try this technique and that technique. And he started the Grange production, yes, in 1951 uh, at the McGill Winery using open fermenters, basket pressing, and introduced the process of the completion of a red wine ferment off skins in barrel, which no one had ever done in Australia before and very few elsewhere. So he introduced all these different techniques to create a new style of wine which was very much a trial for the first few years. In fact, the 51 was deemed to be an experimental wine. It's now deemed to be the first Grange. And it was so different to the wines of the time. And I think what Max probably did is he showed the wine to people a little bit too early. Now, it's never raw. You know, even day one, it's quite balanced. But it was very different to the styles of the time. So after just a few years... The then family-owned company sort of said to Max, well, look, you know, you've shown a few people and the reaction to this wine isn't as favourable or as positive as we thought it may have been or should be, and um, prohibited him from continuing the production of the wine. So the vintages of 1957, 1958 and 1959 were literally made underground beneath the winery at McGill Estate in the underground tunnels. Uh, like in the Second World War in France and whatever, he, you know, sectioned off. He hid barrels, he hid bottles across three complete years under across all of that stage. You know, the threat of instant dismissal, had he have been caught, you know, those were, you know, families ran wineries like tyrants. So had he have been caught, anything could have happened, but most likely he would have been sacked. Anyway, at the 1962 uh, Sydney Wine Show, um, he had entered some of the earlier Grangers, including the, the legendary 1955 vintage, 
and it blitzed the field. It won everything it could win. And everyone, oh, well, the family, what have we done? We discontinued it. And then, of course, Max said, well, look at what I can show you. <laughs> and ended up going from villain to superhero, literally just with uh, one set of show successes. And, you know, thereafter, that wine blitzed everything. And it was withdrawn from shows, actually, in Australia in the 70s because it's such an identifiable, distinctive style it ran its race and uh, was withdrawn from shows. It had no more, nothing else to prove really in Australian wine shows and the rest is history. Well, at least the family had the good grace not to sack him when they found out. Anyway. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> there's, there's always that's that. Right. It's yeah. just turned 70. Why is the Grange so famous? Why does it attract so much attention? You'll tell me it's the quality, uh, but there are obviously very high quality wines elsewhere in the world, elsewhere in Australia, that, that yeah. don't attract anything like the profile the Grange does. Why is it such a kind of super wine in terms of profile? Well, I guess it started in Australia initially, and then the word spread. You know, Frederick Wildman's son sold it into the United States, you know, only a couple of decades or so after it was created. Uh, obviously, the odd bottle ended up in the United Kingdom and elsewhere, and the legend grew quite organically over time. But even in Australia, um, it's known as a wine to this day, despite its price, and it's not an inexpensive wine. Many parents, and not just the wealthy, will buy this wine for their sons or daughters for their 21st birthdays, as an example. It's a bit of an Australian tradition. You know, it's very much dovetailed into the psyche and culture of Australia, and it's sort of seeped out of Australia. And, of course, you know, when we talk quality, uh, invariably we think of the seriousness, the salarability, the propensity to age, and Grange does exactly that. We've just completed, in fact, our eighth edition of the Rewards of Patience tome. And in that book, we, as we do with all editions, we bring in judges from all over the world. And without fail, with edition eight, not legendary, the 53 and the 55 are more legendary Grangers, but after over 60 years, the 52 overtook both my favourite, the 53, and the 55. 100 points, you know, to me, Points are quite often obscene, and I don't know what a 100-point really means, you know, in the way of, of a wine score. But it becomes a reality when wines are over half a century old and they get perfect scores, then you really do take notice. And 52s, 53s, 55s to this day, they're not just curios, they're not just rarities, they are really good drinks. <laughs> they're a real thing. And I think that's that's part of the appeal as well. You know, when someone opens a 62 and there's a big argument of whether the 62 or the 63 are better, you know, today, not relying on memory, when they're actually open today and they're still so full of life and vitality. And not to forget, these wines were bottled with 50 and 60-year-old bottling technology. You know, the wines we're making today should last even longer, and fingers crossed they will. A 53, did you say, is your oh, right. favourite? <laughs> well, that snuck out, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, uh, at this point of time, yeah, look, it's, it's such a funny thing. 53, I've always thought, is a great wine. 55 had the reputation, and 52 is always a bit of a dark horse, but there are so many, you know, in the 60s, I've already mentioned 62, 63. The 70s, we've got 
71, 76, perfect scored wines, 80s, the 90s, you know, red wine of the year across the planet, the 1990. And many people are now, you know, some of the more recent releases have been perfectly scored. So we've been very, very lucky. And of course, we've just released a series of three wines across the last few years, G3, G4 and G5, which have extended the legend even further. These are blends across three, four and five vintages respectively, blended and matured as a blend and released in uh, small bottle numbers. So this will add to the uh, the character and the esteem and the legend of Grange, I'm sure. Uh, G5 has been just recently awarded 100 points by many people across the world. You know, when someone gets a trophy or a gold medal, well, that's nice. But when they're scored many trophies, that's when you start to take notice. And when wines receive perfect scores of many people, not just the, the local bias writer down the road, but around the planet. I think that's when it's ta- worth taking note. Absolutely. Peter, stay with us. There's still so much to talk about. Uh, I want to know how you and your team go about selecting the fruit for the Grange and the other wines in the stable as well. And also hear some more about uh, the vision for the Penfolds wines outside Australia as well, uh, most especially those multi-country blends that I mentioned at the start. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our first selection of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. These from the 2021 awards process and where better to start than Penfolds, given that Peter is our guest this week. Bin 138 Shiraz Grenache Mataro 2019 was a silver medal winner with 93 points. That's just two short of a gold. It's inspired, as you might imagine, by the blends of the Southern Rhone. This is majority Shiraz uh, with Grenache and Mataro, otherwise known as Mourverde. Each year, fruit for Bin 138 is sourced from old Barossa Valley vines, some more than 100 years old, and then matured in seasoned oak. Staying in Australia, here's a wine that won not just a gold medal, but also a prestigious trophy. And you may remember we were talking to uh, Freddie Bulmer about that uh, trophy process that comes at the end of the uh, judging process. London Calling Cabernet Malbec 2019 from Claymore Wines in the Clare Valley was described as beautifully complex with good, clean black bramble fruit laden with undertones of coffee, chocolate, wood and bay leaf. The palate is refined with fleshy fruit, well balanced with good acidity and rich, ripe tannins. An overall excellent wine that shows complexity, they said. 70% Cabernet, the remainder Malbec, it sounds absolutely delicious. And finally, for now, to South Africa and an MCC, that's a Method Cap Classique, the name given to South Africa's traditional method sparkling wines. Boschendal Method Cap Classique Brut Non Vintage from the Western Cape was a silver medal winner with 92 points. 
The judges said of this, fresh lemon, ripe yellow apples, white peaches on a light short crust pastry, light and easy drinking sparkling wine. And uh, I love MCC. It offers incredible value, usually, compared to other traditional method sparkling wines. And a quick search just now suggests this is easily available at less than £15 a bottle, uh, which is not bad for a silver medal winning traditional method sparkler. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. So we have a very special guest this week on The Drinking Hour. It is Peter Gago, the chief winemaker at Penfolds, who's joined us from the other side of the world in Melbourne. Uh, Peter, to pick up, let's talk about that uh, process that you lead to select the grapes for the Grange and then the other wines in the portfolio. Uh, You're in charge, clearly, as uh, the uh, chief winemaker. But as I understand it, it's uh, very much a, a team thing. Yeah, look, uh, there are eight, nine of us constantly, sometimes ten. And then, of course, at Harvest, uh, we will, you know, employ uh, a couple of people extra to help out when things are just flat chat. But, yeah, the Penfold winemaking team really is the essence of the success of Penfold. You know, the generational passing of the baton, the whole culture of this thing called Penfold's is due to the team and that's why you'll also notice david you know on the back of any bottle of any of the wines you'll never see a winemaker signature i've been asked many times you know by marketers across generations well you know a signature on the back no 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 it's the penfold team Mm. and um you know very very proud of that culture which is now well 177 years old so how do the team go about selecting the fruit that's used in the Grange, because I've never quite absolutely understood how you decide where it comes (laughs) from and which fruit you're using. Well, look, I'll I'll step two or three steps back first. You know, Grange is a great example of Penfolds. Well, it's our flagship example of what we refer to as a multi-regional blend. But at Penfolds, we also make wines from single viticultural regions and also wines from single vineyards or oftentimes even blocks within single vineyards. So because of our size, we're quite sport in many ways. You know, the word terroir or sense of place We have huge acknowledgement and respect of that. But we also make wines from vineyards to a style within a region, or if I can use the word house style of Grange or 707, or for our white wine, for example, our flagship Chardonnay Yatana. So if we use Grange as the case study, um, during harvest, obviously, we don't just pick grapes and then cross our fingers. You know, we, we track all the way back to rows and single vineyards. And we split up the team across different regions. And the winemakers work in cahoots with our, what we call GLOs, grower liaison officers, you know, viticultural uh, internal consultants almost who deal with growers because we get a lot of our fruit from growers, private growers, and then we have our own vineyards as well. But the thing that's a little bit different about making grange is during the ferment, you know, we take the wine off skins reasonably early and complete the fermentation in barrel off skins. Now that's a very laborious process and you've got to have a pretty good idea that, hang on, that ferment is a contender for something to the style and the quality of our flagship. So we might start off in vineyards with a lot of choice. 
it then conically gets steered into the winery during harvest and vintage, and then the ferments go one way or another. Then we make another brave call to the left or to the right in the barrel, American oak in this instance, Quercus alba, and then things ferment. Now, that all ends around late April, May, and in late May or June, all of the barrels, all of the different tanks uh, come into what we refer to as classification tastings. And this was pretty much started by Penfolds. The wines come in and we don't know the vineyard, the volume, or for that matter, even the variety of the wines that have been set aside for Grange, Sinonri, been 707, RWT, and you start at the top and you work your way down. So when we make the selection, we do so without bias. And there are two biases, emotional biases and financial biases. The emotional being, oh, you know the growers, you've worked with them for generations and or, you know, they're friends or whatever. Well, no, no, none of that. You don't know which wine is theirs. Uh, The financial biases, it would suit us if all of the fruit that was going to go into the blend came off our own vineyards and save us a lot of money. But again, the wine is selected, if I can use the expression, organoleptically blind, purely by sight, smell and taste. And that is what is selected. It keeps us honest. Um, I'm sure the accountants, and even for that matter, the board, <laughs> don't approve sometimes. Because I'm sure they don't. That's, no. <laughs> why, that's why the volume of Grange varies year to year, because we don't know at this point of time what the volumes of what we've selected it might be. And that's why, the, you know, quite on the percentage of Cabernet that goes into Grange varies year to year, because some of the contending material might not even be Shiraz or Syrah. So, um, yeah, look, it's, it's a method that we've used and we still use it and we still advocate its use and when we've gone through Grange, Sinonri, RWT, we're then into the bins 389 and we work our way down and we sort of finish at a Canunga Hill level and um, then we do it also for the whites. Now some things are preordained of course you know our McGill Estate Shiraz is a Penfold monopole it's a 5.2 hectare vineyard nothing else can go into it but I often joke even our McGill Estate single vineyard Shiraz is still a blend and it's a blend from the different blocks of that vineyard, anything from five to eight different ferments of fruit picked across two or three days. And we'll quite often relegate a ferment or two, and we might even elevate one ferment, you know, quite often a little bit of McGill might make it into Grange. So, you know, it's a very different way of winemaking in that regard. But the techniques, you know, in crushing and pressing, fermentation are quite idiosyncratic as well. And that's what people refer to when they refer to the Penfold stamp. It's a style, you know, Grange. You you pick these red wines of Penfolds firstly as being Penfolds. And then if you know the styles reasonably well, oh, that's, you know, that's a great 389 and that's a wonderful bin 128 or, gee, St. Henry's looking good this year, you know, and, and people almost even without looking at the label will identify those styles year in, year out. And it's a style that is expanding beyond Australia. I mentioned in the introduction, there's a champagne, there are the uh, California uh, collection wines. Uh, why have you decided to do that? Yeah, look, it, I think it's a, almost a natural progression. You know, the, the then family-owned um, company back in the mid-1800s, Dr. Christopher Rawson Penfold 
and his wife Mary for a long time had the winery, the spiritual home of Penfolds at McGill Estate, and all the vineyards around it and into the foothills were our vineyards. But then demand outstripped supply and they had to go to the south. They ventured to McLaren Vale. They went to the north. In 1901, 110 years ago, they ventured to the Barossa Valley, you know, after their time, of course, you know, forebearers of theirs. So bit by bit, um, we spread out of McGill Estate and even, for that matter, out of the Barossa and other regions in South Australia. For that matter, you know, our, our flagship white Yatana is blended even nowadays across four states of Australia. So it's something that started in the 1800s. Back in 2006, we left the mainland of Australia and ventured south to Tasmania, the island state of Tasmania for Chardonnay fruit Yatana. So I guess it wasn't a huge, figuratively speaking, leap of faith to jump across the Pacific uh, into California. In fact, that project, although we only released the first quartet of wines back in March of the last year, 2021, we started that endeavour in the late 80s back in California when we took a half share in the Geyser Peak Winery in Sonoma. And then it was in the 90s that we planted vineyards at Kamada Hills just outside of Paso Robles. So yeah, back in 2021, we released the first of our wines out of California. Now, why are we doing that? Well, we still have huge issues getting A1 grade, what I call A1 grade, and we call A1 grade, Cabernet out of Australia. We, we just cannot find enough fruit to satisfy the demand for not only bin 707, our flagship Cabernet, but even bin 169, our French oak matured Cabernet out of Coonawarra. You know, we just can't get enough of that material. And in the Napa Valley, of course, wonderful Cabernet. And uh, why not avail ourselves of that? And, you know, even into France, we now are operating in Bordeaux. Our parent company bought a winery and vineyards and uh, watched this space. Exciting times ahead. So maybe if it had been another winery, you'd sort of think, well, what are they doing? Are they just buying discrete separate wineries that they operate independently? No, in this instance, Penfolds is putting this material, this fruit, through a Penfold lens and continuing to make wines to style, albeit with fruit sourced from different vineyards, from different states, and now even from different countries. And you mentioned the board and the accountants earlier on. Um, something I imagine they would be concerned about as you expand into uh, different frontiers in wine terms um, is you and your team spreading yourselves too thinly. Yes, and especially in light of what's transpired over the last two years, where, as an example, you know, I'm working in France and California in the first couple of months of this year. And once upon a time, I just jump on a plane, you know, do my work in Champagne, in Bordeaux, then get on another plane out of De Gaulle, boom, into San Francisco, have a car ready to go into uh, the Napa. Those sorts of things are becoming more difficult. And in fact, for the first two trips of this year, it's in and out of France back to Adelaide, in and out of America back to Adelaide, and we'll just, you know, see how that goes. I was working in Singapore back in um, November of last year, and even that was difficult. So, yeah, it's not even just spreading ourselves too thinly. It's also the logistical and safety issues that have crept into the equation. And who would have predicted this? But in terms of the, the Penfold winemaking team and our viticultural teams and our marketing teams, you know, we, we are 
expanding not only our access to fruit, but the team is growing slowly. And again, we're trying to extend this thing, I refer to it as the culture, uh, the ways of working, the Penfold DNA, whatever terminology we wish to use. That is front of mind all the time, that we can't just you know, hire operators to do things according to a, you know, a recipe or whatever. Winemaking is very, very different to just making perhaps other beverages. So, yeah, we've got to be very careful that we crawl before we walk. And this and these programs are, you know, <laughs> they just didn't happen overnight. As mentioned earlier with America, this that scheme started back in the late 80s and only realised last year in 2021. You mentioned amongst your travels, Bordeaux there. Will we see a Penfolds Bordeaux? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> That's, uh, and look, and, and done uh, again the Penfolds way. Not that, and there's no arrogance to any of this. We're not going to go into Napa and show them how to make, you know, a real Cabernet or into Bordeaux and dabble it. But what we're doing very sensitively, very respectively, is we're taking some of the wonderful fruit and some of the great characters from some of the wonderful vineyards and soils and uh, trialling, obviously, and then blending to extrapolate that uh, Penfold House style that started, yeah, back in 1844. So really grapes are ingredients. You know, a painter doesn't say, oh, well, I can't paint with that watercolour or that oil because it was made in Italy or made in France. I can only use Australian-made paints you know, in my paintings. And it's analogous. I know it's a bit of a long bow there. But, yeah, we're using um, the raw material, this, this thing called a grape, to do different things. And, um, yeah, that's, it's hugely exciting. You know, and people aren't perhaps as conservative as they used to be. You mentioned a little bit earlier the two wines out of California, Quantum and Bin 149, whereupon not only are we making wines in California, but we're now blending them with A-grade material out of South Australia. And the labels of those two wines bear a very different term. They're called wines of the world. Now, out of Bordeaux, we may or may not, if we make specifically Bordeaux-only wines, they will be appellated and label integrity being what it is, they'll be labelled accordingly. But who's to know? We might go down a, a, you know, a similar, similar pathway there as well. But as long as we're true to this red stamp of Penfolds, it's then up to the marketplace to determine in a puristic or otherwise sense whether or not they want to support that style. And I think at the end of the day, people look at what's in the glass, look at what's in the bottle, and don't necessarily look at all the small print on the back label or whatever. If they like a style, uh, they like the style. And that's what we're trying to do. We're looking at what people like, what works, and if these wines gather dust on shelves, then we know we've not been that successful. And look, over the years, uh, there are many Penfold wines that have fallen by the wayside, even just out of South Australia. So some things work, and we're very proud of that. A few other things don't work. But if you don't trial and you don't try different things, then you're literally you know, going backwards down the river in many ways. We have to look at the future. Well, that's a great place to leave it, although I do want to ask you one question. Uh, you regard your role as one of custodian uh, at Penfolds, a custodian of the Grange, custodian of, of Penfolds, I guess, as well. Do you have a kind of personal winemaking 
philosophy? Well, I sort of do, and I use it as a weapon in some ways, corporately <laughs> and others, you know. When someone says something that's not altogether perhaps as it should be, I remind them that the wine comes first, you know, and if you get that right, then other things follow, you know, the profitability, the success or whatever. But if we look after the wine, that will protect us. I often say to some of the junior winemakers and others, you know, oh, gee, a good vintage, a bad vintage, a good harvester, bad, you know, what we do in those years because of our classification system is we'll just make lesser volume and try and maintain quality in certain levels. They might not be all, you know, as great as some of the great vintages of particular wines, but I said to them, we just can't afford to make bad wines. Everyone loves accolades, you know, and carry them like, you know, medals on their lapels but i say to the young winemakers the bad wines follow you to the grave it's not a matter of oh you've sold them (laughs) relief you can't release those they're bearing the penfold stamp people will remember you know in 20 30 years they'll be opening that vintage that wine and they'll be asking the question whose watch was that (laughs) so we really do have to do the right thing you know the old in vino veritas and wine there's truth there's something about this and not all wines are at Grange price, you know, we're as proud of our Canunga Hill Shiraz Cabernet and its longevity and its history as we are of Vin 28 and Vin 389. And, you know, with the Champagne Project, the alliance with Tino, you know, we've got to do the right thing via the House of Tino as well as Penfolds. So there's a lot to protect. And I don't think the role of custodian can be overstated. And it's not just the winemaking level, the marketers, the finance people, the viticulturalists. It's our job to take Penfolds into the next 177, 178 years. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you uh, do that. Uh, It's fascinating to talk to you. Uh, you talked about teaching, communicating. You you do it so well. Um, it's uh, yeah a great honour to chat to you uh, on the drinking hour. Thank you very much for your time, Peter KK. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for the well the privilege and the honour and spreading the little word, uh, not just of Penfolds but Australian wine and wine in general. I think it's just one of the most civilised things we can engage in. It's a lovely thing. Thank you for your time. Thank you. The drinking hour on Food FM. So thank you to Peter Gago. It's just time for a final selection of wines from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And let's uh, take another in his honour from Penfolds, Bin 798RWT Shiraz 2019, won a silver medal. The initials RWT, if you're wondering, stand for Red Winemaking Trial, uh, the name given to the project internally back in 1995. Uh, clearly uh, no longer a trial. Uh, RWT was launched in May 2000 uh, with the 1997 vintage. Its style is opulent and fleshy, according to Penfolds, uh, contrasting with the Grange, which is more muscular and assertive. The judges said of bin 798, opens up to be big and aromatic, then leads us into a palette loaded with blackberries and blueberries, plum, jammy black cherry, and a touch of vanilla. Lots of grip and power. Next, let's just hop across the Tasman Sea to uh, New Zealand. I love Kiwi Chardonnay. Uh, It's uh, just uh, so complex and 
textured and, and generally exciting. Uh, and here's a, a bronze medal winner. Uh, this is the Ned Chardonnay 2020. Uh, the judges said, enjoyably sweet and savoury with ample notes of pineapple lumps, pear and smoked almonds. And finally for this week, let's end on a high, both uh, metaphorically and literally in this case. Uh, let's cross to Argentina and the stunning altitude region of Salta. Grupo Colome El Arenal Single Vineyard Malbec 2020 was a gold medal winner with a whopping 95 points in the judging process. Uh, of this, the judges said, soft and plush with a touch of floral aromatics. Dense, dark fruit forms a tightly knit structure with chunky tannins, chocolate, spices and savouriness hitting the mid-palate, all components of there in abundance. Sounds like uh, an amazing wine. I was fortunate enough to visit Colomé uh, with uh, their Importer Liberty Wines uh, a couple of years ago, and it's the most stunningly beautiful place. Uh, the wines uh, match that uh, beauty. That's a lovely place to end the drinking hour for this edition. My thanks to the brilliant Peter Gago, chief winemaker at Penfolds, for a fascinating chat. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, and I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter if you'd like to follow me too. Do join us next time. If you enjoyed the programme, do please rate us favourably too. That helps enormously with all sorts of things. Uh, for now, though, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.